The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I counted this week how many times I've been saying that. Uh, This is message number 19 in this chapter. Lord willing, we will say that one more time next week as we uh, wrap up uh, our chapter, our study of Romans chapter 12 next week. But we have a few more things we need to cover before we do that. We are slowly working our way through Romans 12, 9 through 21, this marvelous list of ways that the gospel is meant to impact us on a regular basis, particularly in our relationships. If you think about it, most of your life is spent in relationships. Think about that. Think about how much time you spend on a daily basis interacting with people in your home, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, wherever, think about how much time of your day is devoted to dealing with and interacting with people. We need to know as believers how those relationships must be informed by the gospel. And so we are looking at 25 specific ways that the gospel impacts our life and our relationships. We have seen 19 of them already, and we'll see three more this morning. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 9, Romans 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul has been giving us here the instructions for how the gospel impacts us on a horizontal level. For 11 chapters, Paul has described for us the incredible work of Christ in redeeming us so that this horizontal relationship between us and God can be fixed. And now he turns the corner in chapter 12 and says, now here are the implications for how this needs to manifest itself in your relationships. We said that it's very difficult to outline this section that I just read, but there is a basic structure that Paul is working from. And the structure is this. In verses 9 to 16, he is dealing with relationships between us and believers, how we interact with fellow believers, one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We finished that section last week. And in these final five verses, verses 17 to 21, Paul deals now with the issue of how we relate to unbelievers, to the world, to our enemies. There may be some principles here even for how we deal with believers who don't like us. And so we come to these final five verses this morning, and the emphasis here is on how we as Christians deal with a hostile world, how we engage in those who don't like us, how we deal with those who harm us and mistreat us. And so we might entitle the sermon, The Christian and His Enemies. The Christian and those who do you harm and mistreat you. I want you to notice that in these verses, actually starting in verse 14, there there are a number of very definitive, clear statements. Notice verse 14, bless and do not curse. That's a pretty strong statement. Then down to verse 17, where we'll pick it up today, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Then verse 19, never take your own revenge. Then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Paul is saying that when it comes to people who don't like us, when we have to deal with those who are opposed to us or mistreat us or do us harm, retaliation and revenge are completely off limits. Why does he say this? Why does Paul give us a a series of very definitive and absolute comprehensive statements saying that retaliation and revenge has no place for us? Because he knows our hearts. He knows your heart, he knows my heart, and he knows that our tendency when we get hurt is to get back, right? Let's just admit it. Everyone go north and south, yes. Every single one of us here, when we're hurt, our tendency is to strike back, to even the score. To, to, you maybe you've heard the phrase, I don't get mad, I get even. This is how the world operates. This is how the world responds to these things. This is basic human nature. We have this inborn natural tendency to retaliate and give out retribution towards those who are not kind to us. We want to, in many cases, even one-up them. Why'd you pull your sister's hair? Because she did it first. Why'd you hit your brother? Because he hit me first. And as we get older, it just gets a little bit more subtle. This is human nature. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, the desire to retaliate almost overwhelms us when when we have been mistreated or treated unjustly. And Paul's point here is when it comes to that, our job, our responsibility is to never try to get back. This is hard to do. This is very, very difficult for us to do. In fact, this is countercultural. This is counterintuitive because everything in us, when someone harms us, wants to retaliate. We want to get back. And so Paul is calling us to do something here that requires the supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this on your own. In fact, I'll be honest with you, as I was working through this text this week, I I have found this to be probably the most difficult text so far in this list. And you're going to find it 
difficult as well because every single one of you sitting here this morning has someone in your life that has harmed you, who has mistreated you, who you might actually consider them to be an enemy, whether they're in the church or outside the church. And what Paul is going to do, I have to warn you, you you have to understand what you're about to experience here. You have to know that Paul is going to expose your desire for revenge. He is going to unearth this tendency in our heart. He's going to confront our sinful attempts at retribution. He's going to challenge the unkind things that you want to say that are mulling around and floating around in your mind and you've gone down the road of a conversation that you want to have with someone and Paul is going to challenge that. He's going to get in our kitchens about the desires buried deep within our heart that want to strike back. You say, Todd, you don't know what this person has done to me. You have no idea. You don't know the things they've said to me. You don't know the things they've done to me. You don't know how I've had to deal with this person. Isn't there some way I can get back just a little bit? Paul says this is a zero-tolerance policy. It's going to be a hard line in the sand. And so as we begin this morning, I I want you to think about that person. I want you to think about that individual in your life who has done you wrong, has hurt you and harmed you, who you might consider your enemy. I want you to think about that person, and then I want you to buckle up because it might get a little uncomfortable. What does Paul have to tell us about this? Number 20. Here we go. Number 20, here is another evidence of a gospel-shaped life and a gospel-shaped relationship. We're just going to be in verses 17 and 18 this morning. How does the gospel need to inform that individual that I just asked you to think about? Number 20, you need to have an evil avoidance. An evil avoidance avoidance. By that I mean that you need to abstain from every form of evil that you want to see inflicted on that individual. Look at verse 17. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. The ESV says this, repay no one evil for evil. Another version says, don't mistreat someone who has mistreated you. And one looser translation says, if someone has done you wrong, do not repay him with a wrong. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And the word never there is literally the word no one or nobody or nothing He is comprehensive here, and he is saying that there is absolutely no one ever who should be the recipient of your desire to retaliate in an evil fashion. It is a comprehensive statement. It is an absolute statement. It is a timeless truth in which there are zero exceptions. I love 
things like this because it removes any doubt about whether the principle applies in the situation or not. We, we oftentimes don't come across such absolute principles, but when we do, we, we have something that removes any doubt about whether it's to be applied in any situation or not. This is an absolute statement about the fact that there is never, ever, 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 get the idea? A situation when this admonition does not apply. Let that sink in for a moment. Just let that sink in. There is never a person in your life who is exempt from this. There is never a situation where you will get yourself into when you are exempt from this command. You will never find yourself in a situation where you can write this instruction off. It applies in every situation to every single person without exception, and you are bound to observe it with every person you will ever enter into in whatever relationship you find yourself. That's how comprehensive the statement is. Never, you ready for this, the Greek, means never, ever. Nobody should be the victim of your desire to retaliate with evil. Now, here's the assumption Paul has as he gives us this instruction. The assumption is this. You are going to be mistreated. You are going to be mistreated. There will be people who do not like you. You just need to accept the fact that you live in a broken world. You live in a fallen world. You live in a planet that is dominated by sin, under the control of Satan. You are going to find yourself in situations where people don't like you and mistreat you and harm you and do you wrong. And added to that is the fact that if you're a believer, the world hates you. How's that for an encouraging message this morning? You live in a world where you're going to be somewhat of an outcast. You're going to live in a world where you frequently find yourself out of sync with the world. It's just the way it is. We've looked at some of these verses already, but listen to some of these. Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say, maybe you'll find yourself in those situations. He says to his disciples and to you and me, blessed are you when people insult you. It's just going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's going to be a part of your existence. John chapter 15, most famously, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Listen, think about that. Do you really think that if they crucified Christ and they killed him, that you're not going to experience some opposition from the world if you're a follower of Christ? If they persecuted me, he says, they will also persecute you. John 16, verse 33 says, In this world you have tribulation. 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. You will. It's guaranteed. In fact, Peter goes as far to say, don't be surprised about this. 1 Peter 4, 12, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter says, don't you ever get to a point where you think, man, this is really odd. That person doesn't like me. How strange. Peter says, if you ever get to that point, you've missed the part. You've missed the heart of being a believer. 
Expect opposition. Expect mistreatment. Expect the fact that as a believer, in fact, the more you stand out for Christ, the more you're going to be persecuted and the more the world will hate you. In fact, some of that opposition may actually come from believers. It shouldn't. You should never impose that kind of response to any person, including a believer, but sometimes you might find yourself with an enemy within the church. I think I told you before that the most opposition and some of the greatest conflict I have had in my life as a pastor has been with Christians. Don't be surprised at that. You're going to be mistreated. And so Paul says here, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, in order to understand this, I need to take you back to the Old Testament. So hold your finger here in Romans chapter 12, and I want you to go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21, I want to give you just a little Old Testament background on this issue of the law of retaliation. Perhaps you've heard of it, called lex talionis. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What does this mean, and, and where does this come from? So I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 21, and I want to give you just a, a little insight here into the Old Testament principle of justice, which was an eye for an eye. And I want you to notice that starting in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 21, there are some instructions on how to deal with personal injuries. Jesus told the Israelites in verse 12 of Exodus 21 that he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Death penalty. You kill someone, you get killed yourself. Verse 13, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint a place for you to flee. If, however, verse 14, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you're to take him even from my altar that he may die. Verse 15, he who strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. You see the death penalty for these kind of actions, God required it. Verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. How about that, kids? Aren't you glad we aren't under Old Testament law? Some of you might not be here. And then this interesting little scenario that he describes, verse 22. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. So here, here's an issue here. He describes a scenario. There's two men duking it out, and they're fighting with each other, and somehow they, they get, end up hitting a woman who's pregnant, and she gives birth prematurely. She's fine, baby's fine, husband levies a fine against that. That's the appropriate way to handle that. But look at this, verse 23. But if there's any further injury, and by implication it means both to the woman and the child, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. There it is. Lex talionis. Two men are fighting and they cause a woman to give premature birth and she is injured or harmed or that baby is harmed physically, then whatever injury that they cause to the baby or the mother, they themselves are to suffer the same injury as 
punishment, which, by the way, has some huge implications for the abortion debate. What did God think of the preborn? What did God think of the child who was yet in his mother's womb? He thought of it as a child, a person. Not a knit, as I just said. Not a thing, not a fetus, not a clump of tissue. A person. And if that person was harmed, even in the womb, whatever injury that was, was to be inflicted upon the perpetrator, Lex Talionis. Go over to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Same kind of thing, starting in verse 17. Get the idea here? Same kind of thing. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is how the community of Israel was to handle these kind of infractions within them. Now, there's a couple things you need to understand about this. First, number one, the purpose of this law was to avoid punishment that was too harsh. The reason God instituted this lex talionis was to ensure that whenever a punishment was inflicted upon someone who harmed another person, that that punishment would not exceed the crime that was committed. In other words, if you punch someone in the face and their tooth comes out, you can't kill them. The punishment needs to fit the crime. Secondly, this is very important, it was meant primarily for the community to inflict, not the individual. These are God's instructions to the nation. God is teaching the nation. Therefore, these words pertain to civil justice, not personal revenge. That is very important for you to understand. This is not a, a statement where you can just go and inflict your kind of punishment on the person because you're looking at This was a, a, an instruction given to the community for the public administration of criminal law through the government, not as a means of exacting personal revenge against somebody. That's why God gave these laws. Now go back to Romans 12. Because... We have the exact same context here. Say, so what do you mean? Notice what comes after Romans 12. What comes next? It's not a trick question. It's Romans 13. And do you know what the first four verses of Romans 13 say? Read them. Every person is to be in subject, uh, subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. Now watch this, verse 4. For it, what is it? The government is a minister of God to you for good, 
For if what you do is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. You see where Paul's going with this? So you're telling me I can't exact any revenge on anybody? That's right. I can't retaliate against anybody who has done me harm? Exactly. I can't get back and get even with anybody who's hurt me? Exactly. Then who's going to do it? The government. You say, I don't trust the government. You'll have to come back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you see what he's saying? You do not have the right personally to inflict vengeance upon anybody. That's not your job. That's not your right. It's not your place. Verse 19, we'll look at this next week. He's going to tell us exactly whose right it is. It's God's right to do this, and he's going to use various means to accomplish that. In other words, you and I have no right to retaliate against anybody for personal wrongs. None. This is what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38, he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. The Pharisees had twisted what we just looked at in the Old Testament, and they said, yeah, we're going to employ that, that very principle, and, and we're only going to do it ourselves. We're going to actually take out the eye, take out the tooth. And Jesus says, no, listen, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other, him, the also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too and give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Does that rule out self-defense? Does that mean when someone's mean to you and threatening you that you say, Oh, that's great. Thanks. Let me have another. That's not what it means. This is not in the context of self-defense. God has built you to defend yourself. It's appropriate. You have a family. God has built you to protect your family. Husbands, God has built you to be a protector of your families. You defend them. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about taking personal vengeance upon someone. That's the context. There's no place for it. Jesus continues in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is not Christ the greatest example of this? I read the text a couple of weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21, you've been called to this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, and he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Savior was reviled, mocked, scorned, hung on a tree as a curse, and he didn't revile, and he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges Righteously. 
My Father's got this. That's our example. Paul practiced this, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. We toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays evil for evil. 1 Peter 3.9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing. You get the idea? Let me just say it as easy as I can say it. Getting even is always sinful. Always your desire to even the score, your desire to one-up someone, your desire to get back, your desire to pay back is always and every time sinful. So, I asked you to think about that individual this morning that has harmed you. Are you trying to pay back? trying to subtly return a little evil for evil. Would you, would you let Paul's words here soften your heart? Would you let Paul's instructions here just settle in and soften your heart to that individual? Number 21, a right conduct. Not only must we have an evil avoidance, we must demonstrate a right conduct. In the face of evil, in the face of mistreatment, in the face of opposition, we are, according to verse 17, to demonstrate a right conduct. Look at verse 17 again. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. The NIV says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. The ESV says, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all men. A literal translation says, providing right things before all men or thinking about something before all men. J.B. Phillips kind of summarizes it this way. He says, see that your public behavior is above criticism. Remember I told you to... Buckle up. This is, this is challenging because what Paul is asking us to do is to make sure whatever our response is toward anyone who is mistreating us in every single situation, it must be right in the sight of all men. That doesn't mean the culture somehow has some ability to tell you what's right and what's wrong. But what he's saying is there is built within every single person, even a culture, this idea of what a right response is and a wrong response is. He says you need to respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect, pra-noeo. Pra, which means before. Noeo, which means to think. It literally means to think beforehand. So it's not just respecting and it's not just providing. It's actually thinking ahead of time before you get in yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be mistreated. You need to think about the kind of response that will honor the Lord as you deal with that individual. Literally, you plan beforehand. 
You have some insight ahead of time. You put some forethought into what kind of response you need to have as you deal with the kind of people who've mistreated you. It's very important to think about because this is a warning against emotional responses to evil. Here's what I mean by that. You've been in this situation. Someone's harming you and mistreating you, and, and if, you, if the Spirit of God is not assisting your heart in the midst of that moment, what's going to happen? You're going to fly off the handle. You're going to say something. You're going to do something. You're going to react emotionally. If you're just following your flesh, you're just going to do whatever comes naturally, and you're going to sin, and you're going to respond in such a way, an emotional reaction in that moment that will keep you from responding properly. Jay Adams says this way, he says, when you've been hit in the nose or kicked in the shins, literally or figuratively, pain and anger can cloud any but the most plain and deliberate plans. You get in a situation where suddenly you're hurting, defenses go up, you're responding emotionally, you're not going to do what's right in the sight of all men. So Paul says, you've got to think about this. You've got to put some forethought into the kind of response that you're going to display to the individual that you know you're going to have this conversation with. Don't go in there with your guard down. Don't go in there with your emotional responses all revved up. No, you've got to go in there and take some time and make the, the effort to plan ahead for that conversation to make sure that you're going to do what's right in the sight of all men. I've had to work hard at this, still working hard at this. I remember once there was a situation where I knew I was going into a uh, kind of a counseling situation. I knew it was going to be a confrontational meeting. I just knew that th these people were not happy with the counsel that I had given, and I knew it was going to kind of be adversarial. I just had this sense that it was not, not going to go well, and, and I knew if, if I just let my emotions go that, you know, I'd respond in kind, and it's not good when pastors punch people, and so <laughs> I had to... Just calm myself down and think about this. And so what I did is I actually spent some time meditating on 2 Timothy chapter 2. The last few verses. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So I, I took some time in the days leading up to that meeting just thinking on that and meditating on that and asking that that would be my response and the meeting went exactly as I expected. They weren't happy. They were hot, yelling, standing up, pointing. But by God's grace, because I had thought about it ahead of time, I, I knew that my response had to be Christ-like. I'm not always done that. I'm not trying to put myself up as the hero of that story, but simply to say that it, it took effort to, to think and plan and Make sure that my response in that moment would be gentle in the face of opposition. He says you've got to display a response that is right, good, noble to all men. You see that verse 17? To all men. It's everybody. It's believer. It's unbeliever. It's family. It's outside your family. It doesn't matter who the person is. You and I must display a right response in the sight of all men. And the reason for that is because the gospel's on display. 
Say, I'm a Christian. I know Christ. I love Christ. Christ has transformed my life. Love Christ so much. Love His Word. He's been so good to me. My life is different. My life is totally transformed. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm different. I'm new. I'm completely, completely, this individual knowledge has been completely renovated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go into a meeting like that, and you start throwing verbal barbs, and you start getting hostile, and you start getting angry, and you start yelling your, your voice and raising your voice. Really? The gospel's affected you? Doesn't look like it to me. You see what's at stake here? Transforming power of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your excellent, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2.15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Does your life display the transforming power of Jesus Christ as you interact with your enemies? Are you putting Christ on display? Is Is the manifest power of the gospel in your life enabling you to respond to your enemies with such kindness and compassion that they say, I've never seen anything like this. What is that? Because you don't act like I act. I love what Calvin says. He says, what is meant is that we ought diligently to labor in order that all may be edified by our honest dealings, that they may, in a word, perceive the good and the sweet odor of our lives, by which they may be allured to the love of God. What kind of smell are you giving off? Is it a stench? Or is it the sweet odor of Christ? By which when you interact with people, they're actually allured to the love of God because they've never seen that kind of response and they're expecting you to hit back. What kind of advertisement for the gospel are you? What kind of advertisement? You're an advertisement. You may not think of yourself this way, but you are an advertisement for the gospel. And the question is, what kind? People are watching. Husbands, are you doing what's right and how you treat your wives? Wives, how about you? Are you doing what's right towards your husband? Children, parents, as you interact with each other, are you examples of doing what is right? Number 22, a peaceable constitution. A peaceable constitution. I was reading this week from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. I would commend that book to you if you are in a situation where this is challenging your heart and you need to grow in this area. I would commend to you this book, The Peacemaker. These are the words which he begins his book with, quote, Peacemakers are people who breathe grace 
They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ, and then they bring His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His strength and wisdom to the conflict of daily life. God delights to breathe His grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and reconciliation. I love that. When you're a peacemaker, God delights to breathe His grace through you and use you to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage reconciliation. That's what verse 18 is about. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If there is one verse that I have come back to more than any other verse in learning how to be more gracious in my dealings with people, and if there is any verse that I have cited more often than any other verse in counseling situations and helping people relate to one another, it is hands down this verse. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Beloved, this ought to be a distinguishing mark of every Christian. We ought to try to live in peace with everyone. You and I must be characterized by a peaceable disposition. I think I said this last week, Christians ought to be the people who are the easiest to get along with, not the hardest. When, when people look at your relationships and people are involved with you, they ought to say, man, that, that man, that woman, that person is so easy to get along with. Peaceable, amiable, conciliatory, irenic. In other words, we might say that, that the distinguishing mark of being a Christian is that you're not spoiling for a fight. You ever met someone like that? Everything's a conflict. Everything's an issue. A every discussion ends up in a fight. I've, I've sat with some people in counseling, and you just see that every issue is an issue. Every issue is a fight. Every issue brings up some other level of conflict. And Paul says, you've got to be at peace with all men. And all means all. Your relationships with unbelievers, your relationships with fellow believers in the church, and we might even say the place that this needs to extend most is the relationships in your home. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, is there peace in your home? Is there peace? You know what I'm talking about. You walk into some homes and you just feel it's tense. People are just kind of walking around eggshells on each other and trying not to upset the apple cart. And it's just tense. You can just feel it in the air. And there's some homes you walk into and, man, are you serious about anything? You love each other, you care for each other, you guys all get along, and this is great, this is wonderful. You've got to work at this. This is not natural. 
we have hanging in our home. My wife wrote Proverbs 17, 14 on a piece of paper that hangs on our fridge. It says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's a pretty good verse when you have five kids. Are you a peacemaker? Look over to chapter 14, verse 19. We'll get to this someday. Verse 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We pursue the things. We, we are aggressive about this. We, we put some effort into and we're diligent about the pursuit of things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It's not natural. It doesn't happen naturally. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes humility. It takes a dying to self. It requires us to actually put some effort in and pursue the kind of actions and, hum- and humble responses that promote peace. Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. James 3, contrasting wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Wisdom from above is that which is first pure, then peaceable. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. By the way, that shows us that you can't crank this up on your own. You cannot do this. You can't manufacture this on your own. Your natural response is always going to be self-defensiveness. And so the only way for you to cultivate this kind of peaceable disposition is to be a man or a woman who's constantly walking in the Spirit and loving Christ and having the Word of God flood your heart, soul, and mind so that you are able then to respond to the conflicts as an outflow of the work of the Spirit in your heart. Is that true of you? Gospel-dominated believers are peacemakers. Notice in verse 18 that Paul gives us some qualifications. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. In other words, you need to do whatever is in your power and your strength to make this happen. It depends upon you to some degree to make this happen. You need to do everything you can in your power and in your strength with your resources to establish this and maintain this peace. In other words, the cause of the discord should not be traced back to you. We'll talk about it in a moment. There's some people that you just can't get along with. It's, it's on them. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But the cause of the circumstances that lead to the discord should not be found in you. You're responsible for your part. You're required to assume assume your half of the responsibility. You're required to extend the olive branch. You're required to build the bridge. You're required to go to great lengths to whatever degree possible for you to reconcile with those who do you harm. You have the onus to make this happen. Which means you don't sit around waiting for the phone to ring and hope that someone's going to initiate it. It means you pick up the phone. It means you step out of your comfort zone. It means you humble yourself. You die to self. You be the first one to repent. You, you be the first one to initiate an attempt at reconciliation. You start it. 
Now, here's the caveat. You don't do this at the sacrifice of truth. We need to make this very clear. You do not do this at the sacrifice of truth. You don't seek peace at all costs. You do not seek peace and compromise truth in order to get it. You don't sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. It's very important to understand. It's not peace at any price. If peace means complicity with sin, then peace has to be sacrificed because you're not going to sin. There's a line you don't cross here. There are limits to which this can be achieved. You don't violate the truth of the gospel and devotion to Christ in order to make peace with those who resist the truth. There's no peace there. If they're demanding that you compromise biblical truths, if they're demanding that you compromise doctrinal realities, then then you can't achieve peace there because you can't go against the Scriptures. You can't compromise your own convictions based on the Word of God. But in all other cases... You attempt to reconcile as far as it depends upon you. Beloved, this is one of those verses that requires us to do some self-examination. Because let's be honest, I think some of us are way too quick to give up on this. I tried. Tried to have a conversation, didn't go anywhere. I, you know, I spent 30 seconds praying about it, Pfft, nothing. That's it? That was your feeble effort? That's all you got? I think we're pretty quick to give up on it because we want to defend ourselves. Oh, I made the attempt. Have you Really? Have you really made the attempt? Have you prayed for days or weeks or months or years? Have you gotten counsel? Have you tried to graciously pursue this individual and have you tried with all your power and everything within you to attempt to reconcile? It's your responsibility. At the same time, I'm so grateful for those first two words of verse 18. If possible. You see, Paul knows that this takes two sides. Paul knows that harmony and peace are not always possible with others because you can't control their attitude, you can't control their responses, you can't control their hearts, you you cannot force someone to reconcile with you. There are going to be some situations in which peace, this kind of peace, is not possible. It might be unattainable. And it's not because you haven't done your part. It's not because you haven't uh, tried in your means to accomplish this. It's because they have been, the other party has been unwilling to reconcile. And I'm so grateful for this, that Paul is not forcing this. He recognizes that in some cases it's just not going to happen. I was at the gym a couple of weeks ago. I saw someone there that doesn't like me. And um, I've tried to be at peace with this person. I've tried to talk and tried to resolve this issue. And this person wants me to compromise my biblical convictions. And 
and I can't and I won't, but I've tried and tried to have conversations and it's one of those awkward moments at the gym where you just, you know, pass each other and don't even say anything. Tried. This person won't look me in the eyes, avoided me. Sometimes that's just the way it's going to be. It's just the way it is. But we try. We pray. We plead with the Lord to do a work. And so, let me ask you this morning, are you a, are you a peacemaker? Or are you a conflict maker? You watch some people and there's a trail of broken relationships behind them because... They're a conflict maker rather than a peacemaker. I told you when we started this section a number of weeks ago that if we really adopted the principles in this text, it would change us. It would change our church. It would change our families. It would change our marriages. It would change our relationships with other people. So I I ask you and I ask myself, are are we willing to do the hard work? Put your defenses down. Stop pointing the finger. Stop thinking, man, I really wish that person could hear this message. Stop thinking that you're completely innocent. Listen, there is almost always something that you can seek forgiveness for in a conflict you've had with somebody else. Almost always. So are you a peacemaker? I pray that this is true for us, our families, and our church. Father, we need to hear these things. If we are completely honest, Lord, we will admit that many times we are more concerned about defending our opinions and defending our preferences and digging in for the battle to win the war when we need to realize that what's more important is the gospel and Christ and demonstrating a response that is right before the sight of all men. And in a room this morning this size, I am completely confident there are busted relationships. And Father, we plead with you to do a work. Lord, let us not leave this morning thinking, that was a great sermon. Let us not leave this morning thinking, I really need to send that to somebody. Let us leave this morning saying, I've got to be more humble. And I've got to be more Christ-like. And there's a phone call I need to make for the glory of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.